A brief word from one of our sponsors. The holidays are always the busiest time of the year and the list of errands you have to do seems endless. I use stamps.com to send letters as part of my work as a journalist, but as we gear up for the holidays, it's especially helpful. Stamps.com brings all the services of the US Post Office right to your desktop, buy and print official US postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. It couldn't be easier. Print postage any day, any time. Stamps.com is always open. Stamps.com not only saves you time, but it saves you money too. Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time. Never overpay again. And with Stamps.com, you get discounts on postage you can't even get at the post office. With all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without the long-term commitments. To go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in DMT. That's Stamps.com, enter DMT. Run, run, run with the railroad. Get out of this side. When the engine turns, then you gotta move on and you gotta move on at night. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking Podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. We're doing things a bit differently this week. We've got an in-depth interview with Holly Dunn, who, as you'll recall from episode one, is the only surviving victim of the railroad killer, Angel Resendiz. Holly has an incredible story to tell, so we thought we'd put it out as a special episode. We're back next week with more on my investigation into Resendiz's confessions, as well as the Colahaco case. For a reminder of what happened to Holly and the murder of her boyfriend, Chris Meyer, here's how we covered it in episode one. Holly Dunn and her then-boyfriend, Chris Meyer, were walking back to a party along railroad Late in the evening of August the 29th, 1997, Chris Meyer and Holly Dunn, who were two students at the University of Kentucky, were returning home from a party walking along railroad tracks near the campus when Resendiz approached them. He actually came, approached us from behind an electrical box. He put a sharp object up to their necks and told them to lie down as he tied them up. He actually tied up Chris's hands with his backpack. He tied up my hands with my belt. He ended up gagging us and tying our feet. Resendiz demanded money, but when neither of them had any, he became angry. The attacker came toward us with a rock, um, and it was a 52-pound rock. He then smashed the rock on Chris's head. He stabbed me in my neck, and he said, look how easily I could kill you. Resendiz slammed a board into her face over and over until it fractured her eye socket broke her jaw. Uh, And then he raped me. He split her scalp in multiple places, stabbed her in the neck, and she slipped in and out of consciousness. Just three blocks from the party, she was hit several more times, breaking her jaw and eye socket. He then covered her and Chris with leaves and left them both for dead. Chris died from his injuries, but little did Resendiz know Hollywood live. She was left for dead, but ended up as the only survivor in the killing spree. Holly Dunn Pendleton is the only known survivor of the railway serial killer. Okay, I have my headphones in. Hey, Holly. Hey, that's better. Okay, now they're working. We're good. (laughs) Okay, good.
So here we are, the Holly Dunn interview. She's written a book, which I highly recommend, about her experiences called Soul Survivor, which I'd read shortly before interviewing her. In the book, you go into quite a lot of detail about the crime itself. And I know you talked about how you've going through the motions of what you did after the party, after midnight, you walked along the railroad close to the UK campus. And when you described Resendiz coming out from behind the electrical box, you wrote, it seemed he had done this before. But what was it about what he did in those first few minutes that made you think that he'd done this before? You know, because I am such a lay person that I've never been in a fight before. I mean, I've never been in an, you know, an, an actual physical fight. I've never been robbed. I had never had anything bad happen to me. So in my mind, it seemed as though he knew what he was doing. He, you know, was very calculated in how he approached us, that he had the weapon on Chris the whole time, how he tied us up. Like it just all was very calculated. He knew how to do these things. So that's what made me think he had done it before. He kept using this sort of tactic, I guess, that there was somebody else. He, he wasn't alone. I mean, he was, you talked about his height. He was fairly small, I think, when you described him to, to, to police. Do you think he knew that there were two of you and, and that he was smaller and therefore he had to make you realize that, he, that there was somebody else there, that he had a gun? Uh, I definitely think they were tactics. I don't believe that there ever was a second person. I think it was just to instill fear in us that, you know, there was somebody else that could catch us. You know, when I think about it now, I'm like, well, if we had tried to run, like this second person could have caught us, you know, we didn't never saw them, like, where were they? And I think that's what he was trying to do. He was just trying to put fear in us. Holly, after this had happened, you went into hospital and and you were only in hospital for what, a a week, I think, two weeks? Uh, One, five days. You'd come home, but he was still out there, still loose. Did you, did that go through your head at that point? Or at that point, were you so focused on the injuries and the pain and being with your family? I think my mind did amazing things. I think that it let me deal with things as I could. So my mind didn't let me go into, you know, oh my gosh, this person's still on the loose and you need to be afraid. My mind was telling me, you need to heal physically. You need to get better and so that you can go on with your life. So heal physically and do that however you need to do that. So I believe that it it was kind of my subconscious almost telling me not to focus on that. But somebody was focused on that, and that was your dad. He had a license to carry a gun, but he didn't usually carry it, only when he was carrying large uh, amounts of money from the business back and forth. But, But he decided to, didn't he? Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, actually, I didn't know that he had done that until he had mentioned it later on, several years later. I'm not surprised. My father probably is one of the strongest people I know. And the fact that he was afraid, but didn't let me feel that fear. I'm not surprised like that. He's that he's selfless like that. Like he was amazing in letting me heal and letting me heal physically and mentally. And I think he did not let me know the fears that he had. My dad went on a, goes on a walk every day. So he would go on his walk every and still go on his walk every day, but just take an, a weapon with him. And I, I really think he was just fearful that the person knew who I was and that they were going to come back and get me. And I, I felt that later on. I felt that around the year anniversary and, and beyond. But um, I did not feel that at the very beginning. You know, my dad sort of hid that his fears from me. 
you were fairly anonymous to begin with, and it was only when America's Most Wanted wanted to interview you for, in order to try and catch Resendez that your you sort of your an, an anonymity was lifted, and you you became this sort of person in the media, if you like, and people knew about what had happened. And that point, you realized that maybe maybe you were a target because you were the only living victim. Right. It didn't make sense only that because I still was anonymous and my name hadn't been released. It was just always a fear. It didn't matter. I I mean, I had all my stuff. Like he did not take anything from me except for the jewelry that he stole from me. I had my ID and my car keys. I mean, I had it all. I, I didn't feel like he had anything of mine. And I even told him a fake name when he was attacking me because I tried to talk to him when he was attacking me and I told him a fake name. So there really wasn't, I guess, a, a way for him to figure out who I was. It still instilled fear in, in my family. And I think, though, that I knew he didn't know my name. And so I felt a little bit of safety in that I was anonymous and my name hadn't been released. And there was no way for him to know my name. There was a pretty shocking bit when you talk about how he'd been spotted in um, Louisville uh, and you were in Lexington. At that moment, it must have seemed like he's been at large throughout the US, but now he's not only in my state, but he's kind of too close for comfort. Definitely. When he was spotted in Louisville was when I said, I'm leaving the country. Um, I was so fearful because I lived alone at that point. I lived alone in my apartment and I did that to re-empower myself. I was living alone, this strong woman living alone and that's what I wanted to portray. But inside I was scared. And so that's when I decided I was going to leave the country and go to university in England and leave. I think I decided that day that he was spotted in Louisville. I literally signed up, went to the office and signed up to leave the country. There's a bit in the book where you talk about how the sound of the train whistle would trigger this instant anxiety and panic attack. And whenever you drove over train tracks, it, it did the same. Yeah, you know, I knew that I was that I had to work through those triggers that I had because you can't avoid trains. Like it's, you're going to hear them. You're going to drive over railroad tracks Like you cannot avoid trains. So I had to work through those. It took time, but today it, it is like a slight, I would say a split second in my mind of, Ooh, I just don't like that sound. Um, so it's still there uh, somewhat, but just so slight that I can almost completely avoid it and, and to not think about it. Um, you talk about the day after Drew Carter met with Resendez's, I think, half-sister in New Mexico that he killed again. And then you also talk about the fact that immigration had, you found out immigration had detained him and then let him go, even though he was, you know, this this wanted man for these brutal murders and rapes and beatings. Finding out that he was let go, I did know about that when it occurred. And you know, it's funny. I did feel anger. I, I, you know, I just thought, oh my gosh, like, could, seriously, like, how did this happen? It's amazing because I immediately started to think, well, we will still get him and this will fix the problems of why he was let go. You know, it's like I, I saw the good that could come from it. Like, this will fix problems. What needs to be connected will and things will be better for everybody else. And I kind of got a little bit of, I guess, good feelings from thinking, well, this won't happen again. 
You said um, the testifying at the trial, Holly, was the most horrific part of the entire thing. And I sort of want to to sort of understand that. It's because of the sort of pressure of having to face this guy again. I don't necessarily place it higher than this terrible thing that happened, but I place it on almost the same level. I had a nervous breakdown the night before. I, I literally couldn't have emotionally gone through with testifying if my family hadn't been there with me. I was an absolute mess. And when I went through the attack, I wasn't a mess. Like I, I was in survival mode. I was thinking, you know, clearly I was trying to, you know, think clearly in survival mode, but I was not doing that in the trial. I was literally a, an emotional mess. There was no, and I was trying to prepare myself for it, but I could not get ready for it. And I think that's why it was so hard was that I was trying to prepare myself. I was mentally doing what I needed to do. I was physically doing a lot of self-care, taking care of myself, yet it was still all that preparation of trying to do self-care and mentally preparing. It was still that difficult and so such a terrible day in my life that that's why it, because I was trying to prepare so much for it. And then it ended up being still so terrible. But at one point you had to look at him. Was that the worst part of the trial? Having to being told you have to make eye contact and identify this person? Oh, definitely. I, you know, I, I was not prepared for that. I, they had not said to me, we're actually going to do this. And, you know, I had seen it in movies. I had seen it, you know, that, that that's how a, a courtroom is. I had never been in a courtroom before, so I didn't know what to expect. But I was never told you're going to have to identify him and look at him and know what he's wearing. Like those kinds of details, they did not tell me. And I'm sure that's on purpose because they they want that emotional factor. But it did not occur to me until that moment that I was going to have to do that. Um, and that was the hardest moment was having to look at him and, and to say what he was wearing. That was, I literally almost could not speak. He didn't look in any way remorseful. No, no, not at all. I mean, his, he had a blank stare, almost a smirk on his face. And I mean, just total blank, black, what felt like black eyes, like no emotion at all. Dead Man Talking is supported by Simply Safe, the home security system that's ready for anything that gets thrown at it. Simply Safe is easy to set up and easy to use. You order the system online, place it in your home, and your home's protected 24-7. It's that easy. Even if a storm knocks out your power, it's safe. Your Wi-Fi goes down, it's safe. Say an intruder cuts out your landline or your power, Simply Safe still calls the police and notifies you right away. Simply Safe is good at what it does. They've been in business for a decade now, and Dead Man Talking is proud to have them as a partner. Do us both a favor. When you do check out Simply Safe, go to simplysafe.com/dmt. Let them know we sent you. That's simplysafe.com/dmt to protect your home and family today. A brief word about another show you should check out, Happy Face, a new podcast from How Stuff Works. For Melissa Moore, 1995 was a nightmare. That's the year the teenager learned that her father, Keith Hunter Jesperson, was a serial killer. It's also the year Melissa Moore's doubt spiral began. 
When you look like your father and you share his intelligence and charisma, how do you know you're not a psychopath too? Happy Face is the story of Keith Hunter Jesperson, his brutal crimes and the cat and mouse game that he played with detectives and the media. You'll recall we mentioned Jesperson in episode four of Dead Man Talking when I discovered that he'd killed someone outside Blythe, California, near where Resendiz claimed he'd murdered three or four people. But Happy Face is also the story of the horrific legacy Jesperson gifted his children. Join Melissa as she investigates her father's crimes, reckons with the past and wades through her darkest fears as she hunts for a better future. Happy Face is a stunning tale filled with emotional, brutal twists and turns, but ultimately it's about the quest for a normal life and how we preserve hope. You can tune in every Friday for new episodes of Happy Face, a series that doesn't just explore a serial killer's mind, but the investigation his daughter needed to walk away whole. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, on the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. There was a very specific modus operandi. I mean, he he had a pattern. There was a pattern to how to what he did, and that presumably helped the police identify these other murders that he committed. He used to bludgeon people. He used to often steal their vehicles as well. Right. And I mean, he often used when he bludgeoned people, he used um, weapons of opportunity that were found, you know, at the location where he was. So he wasn't bringing something in to hit people. He was finding something and then using whatever, you know, he found as a weapon in their house against them. That definitely was a pattern. During the attack, he, I think he told you and Chris that you'd see him on the news because he'd just broken out of jail. You, you, I think you later said you realized he was he was lying about that. When he was in prison, he sold locks of his hair and fingernail clippings and letters from jail. You said that he relished in his notoriety and courted the press. Do you, do you think that an extension of that is, you know, the fact that I sat down with him and he made these confessions? And the question has to be asked, do you think that he was lying about additional murders and that was part of his courting the press uh i think that's very possible i do believe that he was trying to make himself bigger than he was but i I don't think that means we discount anything that he said um i think that anything that he said should be investigated to the fullest but i do believe that he very well could have fabricated a lot of stories to help him in his notoriety. I believe that he was obviously evil and terrible and he did kill so many people, but he was smart. Like that's that's one thing that you got to give him credit for was that he was not an uneducated I mean he was uneducated but he was a smart man. Um I think that he played into a lot of what was happening and I think he got smarter when he got in jail because he started to educate himself. He had all the time to read, to talk to people, to, you know, find out information from other prisoners. He had all this opportunity to fabricate stories or to find out information or detail and detailed information of things that he shouldn't know. So it is like, it, I mean, it, it seems like it's always going to be a game or like never solved that we're not going to know exactly everything that he did because that there is always that underlying thought that he could be lying, 
but then you have to investigate to the fullest. And it's like, where do you draw the line? It's like such a gray area. I noticed that there wasn't one picture of uh, Resendez in your book. And I, and I thought that was a very interesting choice. Uh, that was conscious, presumably. Yes, that was definitely conscious. I mean, I've always said that Resendez is part of my life, but that was one night, small part of my life. And I don't want him to be sensationalized. I don't want him to be seen as someone that was a good person in the world. I want people to know that he was an evil person. He was someone that wanted to do harm to people. And I think by choosing to not put him in my book and to, you know, really focus on me and my life and my life today and and everything that's good, he represents all that's bad. And all those feelings that I had that were resentful, that were anger, that were, you know, all these hurtful feelings that I was feeling, I put them with him and I let them go with him. Like, that's why he's not included. It it was a conscious choice because I don't focus on him. I focus on the good that has come after him. And on from that, you, you also focus a lot on Chris. Tell me about Chris. Chris was an amazing guy. Uh, he was full of life and lived life to the fullest. The way that he lived his life, you would have thought that he knew that his life was going to be cut short early because he surely lived as much as a 21-year-old man can live in their life, he did it. I mean, he had a lot of fun. He had, I don't know, just a great outlook on life. And, you know, I, I try to live that today. You said you'll, you'll never recover from the trauma of witnessing, witnessing Chris's uh, death. Are there parts that you, and I know you've, you, you've moved on in a lot of ways. You have a family, you have a, a great job, a great life. Um, are there parts that you still think about? The one day when I might, think about the that night is the the anniversary of the attack. I think that that's the one day that I just think, man, I really wish that this would have never happened. And I think about what would life be like now if this had never happened? What, where would Chris be? Where would I be? Like, that's when I start to kind of, I don't know, feel sad. Well, I appreciate you talking to me, Holly, and, and it's a incredible story. So, um, Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate your um, care with the story and, and you know, your questions that you asked. I, 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 I really appreciate your interview. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Holly. See you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Holly Dunn, and it's an incredible story. It's amazing the way she's been able to come back from such a horrific experience, and I'm sure it also gives you a bit more insight into the pure evil of Resendez's crimes too. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking Podcast. We're back next week with a regular show, more on my investigation into Resendez's confessions. I hope you'll join us then. Dead Man Talking is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our researcher and production assistant is Connor Tolany, and the band Goodnight Texas are responsible for our theme song, The Railroad. You can check them out at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. Don't forget to always follow developments to the story and get involved on our own Facebook group, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash 
Dead Man Talking. You can tweet us at Dead Man Podcast and email us at Dead Man Talking Podcast at Outlook.com. 